Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Stories from the Influencer Economy. This is Ryan Williams. So excited you're here for episode number 60. My guest is John Corcoran, or actually, I'm John's guest on his podcast, Smart Business Revolution. Funny story, I was with my mom over the weekend, and she heard me on John's podcast. From a few weeks back, she told me she really liked the episode. So with that feedback, you got to listen to mom most of the time. I think moms give great advice. So I emailed John, said, hey, can I grab the file? Would love to repost it for episode 60. So here it is in its entirety. And I have a big announcement. If you go to influencereconomy.com slash book, you can learn more information about the upcoming Influencer Economy book due this year and sign up for notifications in the email list. We'll be giving out a lot of exclusive content, videos of interviews and extra perks for anyone that signs up early. So check out influencereconomy.com slash book. Funny, I'm uh, doing the intro here and I have to avoid talking about myself in the third person because who does that? But I'm really excited for the episode with John. Thanks again for having me on. Without further ado, my interview on the Smart Business Revolution. Welcome to the Smart Business Revolution podcast, episode number 88. Welcome to the Small Business Revolution. 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 Do you want a revolution? Do you say you want a revolution? The revolution. It's going on right now. Welcome to The Revolution, the Smart Business Revolution podcast, your source for how to grow your small business without working 24-7. Now, now, your host for The Revolution, John Corcoran. Imagine you had a childhood where you were sent off to an elite prep school, a place where the rich and famous send their children to be educated, a place filled with the next generation of aristocrats and high society matrons. In fact, imagine if that was you and your dorm room was actually formerly the home to a U.S. president while he attended that school. Imagine how that might influence you and your take on the world. Well, my guest in this episode, Ryan Williams, had that childhood. Ryan actually grew up in the Midwest and he had a more humble upbringing, but then he had the opportunity to go to this East Coast prep school where he found that life behind the Ivy Walls was not always as perfect as it may seem. And in this interview, he shares what life at this elite prep school was really like and what we can all learn from what goes on behind those ivy walls. And Ryan was so inspired and influenced by that experience that he started a podcast, Stories from the Influencer Economy, where he profiles the world of influence and the people who are influential in the new economy. This podcast was also shaped by his experience working as a marketing executive with the new world of influencers. We're talking about content creators, YouTubers, podcasters, and even gamers who have levels of wealth and fame, which today have come to eclipse that of traditional celebrities like actors and actresses, athletes, and musicians. So I wanted to have Ryan on this podcast to share what all of us can learn from these new influencers and how we can apply what they do to our own lives and our own businesses. How can we use their strategies and tactics and tools to build better relationships with influencers in our own lives and to become influential in our own communities? So in this episode, Ryan shares why if you want to become an influencer today, he says you must have a social media presence. But he also says why... Social media is dead, and it's really been replaced by content. He explains what a disagreeable 
giver is, and he says why just because you have a microphone doesn't mean you're going to be heard in what you should do about it. And he gives his advice for if you're just starting out and not sure how to build your expertise and reputation, what you should do. Now, this episode is brought to you by my friends over at the Art of Charm podcast. The Art of Charm is an iTunes Top 50 podcast overall, one of the few truly independent podcasts in that Top 50. And it's no wonder why they do so well. AOC is packed with wisdom from how to become more productive and professional to how to network better for business. And I was honored to be a guest on the Art of Charm last year, and I make sure to listen to almost every episode. And it's one of the very few podcasts I can say that for. So go to theartofcharmpodcast.com or find The Art of Charm in iTunes or Stitcher or your favorite podcasting app. I really enjoy the show, and I think you will as well. And now here is Ryan Williams. All right, welcome everyone. I'm speaking with Ryan Williams. And Ryan, you went to a boarding school at Choate Rosemary Hall, which is an elite boarding school. It's in Connecticut. It's Correct. Alumni include President John F. Kennedy... Former presidential nominee Adelaide Stevens. You got a bunch of actors, famous actors, and went there. I imagine you were surrounded by the children of influencers, many of whom maybe are influencers themselves today. So, is that what inspired you to start a podcast focused on influencers in the new economy? Uh, well, thank you for having me. And uh, I've actually, so I graduated from Choate and I lived in a dorm called East Cottage. Actually, funny story, great segue. East Cottage is where JFK lived. When he was at Choate, we actually had the same room, and they had reconfigured the dorm itself, so the rooms were in different places, but like half of my room was half of his room. And so JFK, and I was vice president of Choate, so I had ambitions to be in politics early on. I I'm, I'm, was born in Washington, D.C., but yeah, I think you know, we had Ivanka Trump was at Choate after I left. I mean, it just the amazing amount of people that I met that had so much uh, wealth given to them was is it's hard to fathom, but yeah, there were a lot of influential kids that went there. Yeah, yeah, but it's and not did, it's not how I started the podcast. No. Did you did you feel like you didn't fit in? I mean, were were you like the poor kid or something like that? Well, I came from Iowa, so I was born in D.C. and I was raised in Des Moines, Iowa, and then I went to show for three years. I loved it. I it, it, that three years formed me more than any experience in my life, um, but it was just a different world that I had never been exposed to. And I, I loved it. Yeah. Boarding school is great. Um, but I wasn't necessarily like the poor kid there. I mean, okay. my family, my, my dad has a, a burial vault business in Iowa and, uh, it's, it was his dad's company. And obviously I haven't taken it over and my dad still has, he's had the same job for 40 years, uh, manufacturing vaults and concrete products. Ah, okay. And so how then being surrounded by these types of kids who came from Trump's who you know, you, you're in Kennedy's old dorm room. I'd be interested to know, is there anything like inscribed? Any, any, was there a plaque outside of your room or anything like that? No, it was under the radar. He, uh, he actually didn't graduate from Choate. And he brought a, a donkey or some farm animal to a school uh, mixer. Back when he, the school wasn't co-ed, it was Choate and there was Rosemary Hall. So he went and got a donkey into a party. And uh, so they were, you know, a mixer it tells you how dated this is. So he didn't even graduate. Did he get kicked out from that? He got kicked out. And little known fact, Choate's motto is, ask not what Choate can do for you, but what you can do for Choate. And so there's some controversy about how he came up with, ask not what America can do for you, but what you can do for America. 
Ah, interesting. And that phrase with Choate has, has been around for a hundred years. Wow. So and it, he's, uh, but he's definitely like the, the son of Choate that everyone loves. You know, there's like Jamie Lee Curtis went there. A lot of, yeah, big actors. But the, the kids themselves that came from a lot of excess and money, they've, it's just interesting to see them because they had so much given to them at a young age and they just partied all the time because there's nothing, giving kids money and a long leash is just a recipe for addiction. <laughs> yeah, I I went to uh, an affluent high school. Uh, my family kind of bought into a, a neighborhood that had a better school, uh, better school district, and so that I could go to a better school. And, and I kind of felt like that. I, I was I was driving a 1982 Oldsmobile Cutlass Supreme T-top was my first car. Uh, believe it or not, it was very used. It was like a beat up old car that my parents hung around for in the garage that I would drive. So I was driving this horrible beat up old car to high school and I was kind of like the poor kid. And, uh, I totally agree. You see what money does to kids, particularly when they're not supervised. So did you see a lot of children of influencers, children of affluent at Choate who were, uh, out of control? Yeah. Just de degenerates. I mean, you could definitely see that like a, a fair amount of people got expelled. So Choate had this terrible scandal in the 80s that was on 60 Minutes where these kids were trafficking a lot of cocaine. And Choate's not going to like this interview but they because <laughs> they don't like to tell the story. But these kids traveled to South America to traffic a bunch of coke to bring back to Choate. Choate found out and, like, I think they, like, told customs, but these kids got stuck at the airport. So, like, 15 kids got expelled. 60 Minutes picked it up. Exactly what we're talking about. Like, kids excess, you know, elite school drug bust like it's great story and and so they did a one strike uh drug policy after that mm. so you, you smoke pot once you were gone and so there were a fair amount of kids that definitely you know they didn't take it that seriously that they were there like i was terrified i'm just like dude my parents are spending so much money at this school how could i even screw it up by smoking weed in my dorm and people would do it and they had no common sense and really they had a long leash and so a fair amount of kids got expelled so aside from the kids who were kind of bad apples or who took the money and, and kind of squandered it in a sense, what did being surrounded by this community, how did it influence your perception of what it takes to become an influencer, to become successful in today's economy? Well, I got to – I had amazing access. Like I spent time with Mikhail Gorbachev when he came to speak at Choate. And like my – actually one of my yearbook photos was me like – peeking over his back with like his two secret service agents since this black and white photo. So I, I got exposed to all these great minds and speakers would come and it really showed me that you have to find your passion. And I think there was a d division at Choate. They're the people that love to make money. And so they went into banking after college and then the others that figured out a way to do something they cared about. And so I think from a young age, they always kicked us to kicked, kicked around the idea of, you know, being open and thinking critically about your decisions in life. And I definitely think I would not have had a podcaster taken this risk uh, as an entrepreneur without the Chode experience because they were always preaching, evaluate your options, be critical, but also open-minded with people. And, you know, having access to someone like Mikhail Gorbachev, you know, it's just like completely rocks your, your thinking. And, you know, I was like 17, 18 at the time. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like between the two, between the make money track and the be creative follow something you're passionate about track you took the latter i took the latter but i didn't i mean i have 
been a marketing executive for seven years in LA. One startup I joined got acquired by Disney. Another one, uh, Machinima, it was valued at $200 million when I left. And another startup state, I was uh, in the US, you know, out of LA, and they're a London based technology company that I worked for. And they all were really successful. So, you know, money was never a, a motivator necessarily, but yeah, I like had a lot of entrepreneurship opportunities to make money. And now it's like, okay, life's too short. I had a baby daughter a year ago. And that was right around the time that I started this, this journey that I'm on right now. Wow. So uh, kind of like the crazy radical decision I made, my son was about, my for older son was about a year old when I decided to start my own business. So what was that like going from uh, working for other companies that had been successful to now doing your own thing, being your own boss and being an entrepreneur? It's a, a lot longer journey. It's like such a, a long-term end game for me. Like I've tried to build things from the ground up and do it the right way with the relationships that I know you're great at helping people and trying to add value and give to others and building like what's, you know, brick by brick. Like it's such a, it's such a, a grind to try to launch your own company. And I didn't want to raise venture capital. And so having other entrepreneurs be my bosses drove me crazy because I would be right about stuff. And I, I'm, I'm very good at marketing. I'm confident in that. And they would never always agree with me. And it was always a challenge to get through to these CEOs because if you're an entrepreneur that raises venture capital, you're wired completely differently than everyone else. Like these people I worked for, I don't know if you just read this article about Kobe Bryant that came out where Kobe Bryant essentially is a documentary on Showtime. And he talks about how he doesn't really have any friends because he's just so focused on his mission that he can't get close to people. And I felt like a lot of the entrepreneurs I, you know, I've been around as a consultant or work for it, like were so driven to succeed that they were difficult people to be around. And so having my own business is a lot harder. It's a lot riskier, but I get to call my own shots. So if it fails, it's on me. And it's not me making a recommendation about how to market something. It's me actually marketing myself. How did you decide that you would start a podcast and that would be the focus of your business? I had the idea for years. Like Influencer Economy, I started thinking about it machinima when I watched all these gamers and YouTube vloggers making hundreds of thousands of dollars as teenagers, going to trade shows like Comic-Con and E3 and PAX and signing autographs. Like There was a story where Dwight Howard from the NBA was at a pro gaming conference next to this gamer, like Optic Hex. And Dwight Howard had no one in line to get an autograph. And this guy, Optic Hex, had 100 people deep. And Dwight was just like, oh, you know, (laughs) what's going on here? (laughs) And I loved how, like, these old school famous celebrities were being disrupted. And I I don't like that word necessarily. I think it's overused. But these do-it-yourself entrepreneurs were building on platforms like podcasting, YouTube, Vine, blogging. And I was like, I got to get in there and I got to create. To, to understand their stories and I want to tell their stories. And so the, the book, the podcast, all these products, you know, came from just a passion and curiosity around the, the topic of influencers and building your own businesses. And you're in the midst of turning your interviews from, as we speak, from the podcast into a book. We talked about that a little bit off air beforehand. Do you think it's easier today to become an influencer because of the tools that exist in the new economy? I think it's becoming more difficult as the tools get uh, more mature and there's a first adopter opportunity. Like if you join YouTube early, 
you created a channel early, like Freddie Wong, who's on my show. He had 7 million subscribers now, but he was one of the first people to publish on YouTube before you can even monetize and before they had partners. And you, for example, you've had your podcast for over two years, right? Yeah. You, you have a first mover advantage because you could be one of the first business podcasts to succeed. And you've done a great job because you have good content, but you also has, you have legacy and longevity and that matters now. And just because everyone has a microphone doesn't mean you're going to get heard. Mm -hmm. So I think the opportunities are there, but the discovery is getting more challenging as, as, as these, uh, these platforms mature. It's interesting coming from a marketing executive. <laughs> yeah. A little bit, a little bit cynical, I might say, or, or just, uh, you know, you're just pointing out the, the difficulty of breaking through all the noise. Yeah. Well, my, I mean, my entire business is that I actually get income from, um, cause I've don't, I've monetized the podcast in small ways is consulting with entrepreneurs, creatives, and companies to help them get heard. Mm. So I am a big believer you can get heard, but you have to, like, I, nothing worse than the term, let's go viral. Like, hey, hey, Ryan, can we take this thing viral? Let's get a YouTuber. Let's make a video. And that's, you have to set yourself up to succeed. And I, I believe the book itself and the podcast and your podcast as well is a great resource to give people the tools to arm themselves to, to get heard. Right. So I'm, I'm completely optimistic about the opportunities. I just think it's, very uh, difficult now with everyone, you know, talking about like podcasting is, is, is so hot and it's, n it's going to be more and more difficult to get discovered in iTunes. And I, I was featured in new and noteworthy and it did really well. And I peaked, you know, at number three in business, but to think about if I started my podcast tomorrow, how hard it would be to get picked up by Apple with every you know new podcast that gets out there. Yeah. So there's a real tension. I feel this tension. I think other people feel this tension. There's so many different tools. There's YouTube. There's podcasting. There's blogging. Uh, there's Twitter. There's Facebook. There are all these different tools that can help to establish you as an expert or an influencer to help you rise to the cream of the top. Uh, what do you advise people to do? Do you say uh, people should focus on a handful of them? Should they establish... Uh, you know, a foothold in, on every platform. Yeah. My advice is like, I teach a class about how to launch your idea and do workshops. And so I have a month checklist that I give people. The first thing is to buy a web domain for your idea and just get your website up, get an email acquisition button at the top. Emails are the most powerful way to connect with people. And then Prioritize your platforms. You know, images are heavy. So I think, you know, Instagram and Pinterest are the best opportunities. Facebook's, you have to pay essentially now because it's so noisy. Like we worked at Disney and we convinced all these big like Pixar type companies and the Disney parks to spend millions of dollars to acquire Facebook fans. And now I would be so mad if I was at Disney and Facebook's making me pay millions of dollars to then reach these fans that I've already paid them for. Like that's such a, a scheme. So I think Facebook, you know, I don't advise people to invest in that, but it's social media is over. Like I used to be, you know, a social media consultant and I, it's, I'm over like social media is done. It's, it's all about the content within these platforms. So in order to be relevant, you have to create something of value. And I think podcasting is the lowest barrier of entry because it's audio. It's, it's easy to, everyone has Skype and a microphone now, but I think podcasting is great. If you want to build content, YouTube as well. If you want to be on camera and be a creator, um, and then Vine, even it's funny talking to Viners that have big followings, they don't even want to use YouTube. Like, why would they? You know, they're making like ten, fifteen thousand dollars doing 
branded content on Vine, and it's so much easier for them. Hmm. Um, so you say social media is dead. So I'm interested. I want to follow up on that um, because one thing I I'm curious about is you know not that long ago, maybe seven eight years ago. Um, you could be an influencer without any social media presence because there really wasn't any social media. But now, could you be an influencer without any social media presence? Or do they go hand in hand? Do you have to have that social media presence? Because it seems like a lot of the people that we consider influencers today, and I think a lot of the guests that you've had on your show, are people who have heavy social media presence or, or large followings. Yeah, I think you could definitely be an influencer without social media. But those are a rare category of people that have been around and they have a legacy. Like George Clooney, for example, is an influencer, doesn't use any social media. And in some ways he doesn't want to because I had a great conversation with a YouTube manager last week. I haven't posted it yet. And she works with Hannah Hart, who is the first YouTube creator to get a book publishing deal. And I have a book on the New York Times top 10 list. It's called My Drunk Kitchen. Is her YouTube channel and the name of her book. And so it's just funny recipes and stories. And uh, Sarah, who's the manager, she was telling me that Clooney and all these A-list actors don't want social media in a lot of ways because it gives them metrics and it gives them numbers that actually validates whether or not they're influential based on data. Mm. And so she goes to book publishers or studios and says, I, we have 2 million subscribers on YouTube. Every video gets an average of 5,000 likes and we get you know 2,000 comments per video. And she has data that shows that she's actually influential. And so I think the rarefied air of the celebrity is dead, and that era has moved on. I, I talk a lot about death. I, I, I promise <laughs> I'm not a morbid individual. But it, That might explain, though, your, your upbringing, right? <laughs> you said your father yeah. grades up. Yeah, or, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So uh, we've you know, reached this point where I think all creators from now on have to come from the web. And the only way you have a following on the web is by social media or building, you know, content around things that you're, you're passionate about or are really knowledgeable on. Mm. I want to ask you about the, you've mentioned a few of the guests that you've had on your podcast. Um, but I want to ask you a little bit more in depth about the different guests that you've had. I think you've had about 40 episodes so far. So what are some we of the celebrated our first birthday? This Congratulations. Week. So Congratulations. excited. Yes. Very good. Uh, so tell me a little bit about some of the, uh, you know, what you've learned, um, in the course of the past year. So one of my favorite guests is somebody you've had on as well, Adam Grant. Excellent the, guest. The book Give and Take. So Adam really has, like, I've had, I've had the philosophy, and I know you subscribe to it as well. Like, we've helped each other without even ever meeting. Like, this is our first yeah. conversation. Yes. And we've already, you know, tried to help each other in business. And I, I thought the data he provided around givers succeeding the most and failing the most was like game changing for me because you have to have your own self-interest aligned with giving and you can get taken advantage of if you're a giver. And also I've figured out how to weed out takers more. So I test people with like helping them to see their reaction. Yeah. And I can, I can scope out the takers a lot more easily now. You can also test them with asking for help too. Yeah. You know, it could oh, totally. be something as simple as, could you retweet this? Yes. Yeah. And yeah, and so I, I love that conversation. Um, I had Willie Geist on my show, and he's a friend from college. So I got to go to the Today Show office where he works, and I hadn't been there. And he's this host. You know, he's doing so well for himself. And what was great about him is that he also interviewed Adam Grant for the Today Show. 
so we have a guest in common. And that's you have a guest in common with the Today Show host Willie Geist. Like the fact that that's even fathomable in this era where we're all mini media companies, you know, in our living rooms and our converted garages that are now offices. That that was a, this transformational moment where I felt like I had everything I believe about media and you know having a suitcase with your gear and bringing it to people's offices to do interviews like is actually coming to fruition. Yeah. Although I'll say it probably took the Today Show less time to book Adam Grant. It took me about six months. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, interesting. Yeah. How did it go down? Um, he, I first started contacting him, I think, around the time he'd had the New York Times profile. He had a huge New York Times profile, so he was just way in demand. Um, and what I did is I just used his strategies on him. So I just turned around and, you know, he, he gave me his publicist and said, she'll get you booked. And then she never booked me. So I just kept on referring other guests and other business to her publisher or, or to his publicist. And uh, I think I got, she got some business out of it. Eventually, finally, she relented and she scheduled me. Oh, no way. Yeah. So you I also quoted get, him in a bunch of articles, too. You helped, you helped uh, her get publishing Right. So, right. So he, he said that she would get me. She was independent, independent, like book publicist. Who yeah. Was helping. Yeah. I worked with her, too. She, she was really nice. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But it took a while. So I just continued to uh, I gave her other re- like I actually referred other larger podcasters to her to get Adam. And I got Adam placed on other larger podcasts. Oh, okay. Like bigger, Art of Charm. Yep. Like Art of Charm, like other big, you know, podcasts like that. And then eventually they're like, all right, all right, all right. We'll come on your stupid little podcast. <laughs> she's, she surrendered? Yeah, exactly. Like right. raising the white flag? Right, right, yeah. I, yeah so I, yeah. I got I, – I was introduced to him by my friend who went to Wharton. Mm-hmm. And so he – my friend never met Adam. And we, he published a great article about uh, raising a moral kid in the New York Times. So my friend's like, hey, you should talk to my friend Ryan. And I had just published an article on Medium – uh, how helping people succeed in business by giving without expecting anything in return is the best business model. And so my friend sent him that article. I was like, I'm entering you guys. Adam then responded right away. I was like, hey, my research aligns with what you're doing. And then I got him on like within two weeks. Oh, nice. And my microphone broke that day. And I was like, I can't reschedule. Like, there's no way I can get it back. So my microphone like, isn't as perfect as I had thought it was going to be. So I, like, edited out a lot of my dialogue. Yeah. Because <laughs> I was like, I, I got to do this. I can't wait. That's funny. Um, but I love it. I think that for, for the guests in general, that you get to pick their brains. Like, one skill I've realized is I'm a much better interviewee now when I go on other people's podcasts. Because at least I think I am. You be the judge of that, uh, <laughs> as will your listeners. But I think I've learned how to answer questions a lot better because I've – like Brian Koppelman, for example, he uh, has a podcast The Moment and he you know, directed Rounders, the poker movie. I tweeted him, hey, I'm going to New York. I'd love to have you on. And he DM'd me his email. I went to his office in like Upper East Side of New York City. Never met him in my life. And we talked for over an hour. And everyone tells me that's like one of their favorite episodes. Oh, very Cause, cool. Because he's similar to us where he was 30, had a law degree, and his wife was, said to him, you got to explore your creativity, mm-hmm. and you need to write a movie script. And that, that was the, you know, the rest is history. Mm. Oh, cool story. Um, so t- 
tell me a little bit more about some of the other guests that you've had and some other lessons that you've learned. Um, and particularly, you mentioned Adam Grant. We should actually dive into that a little bit uh, because there are a lot of people who haven't read that book. Um, at giveandtake.com. It's give three take, chapters yeah. online Yeah, if people want to check it out. And um, the, the basic message behind the book is that it's better to be a giver than a taker, and you're more likely to be successful in business and in life. And, and um, you know, I think that the response that some people have to that, particularly if they're struggling, particularly if they, if they feel like they're not making the income that they deserve or they need more clients or they need more business or whatever, is, well, why should I be – why should I go out and give to other people when I need – I need I, – I'm the one who needs help. Why should I go help someone, particularly someone who's really successful, when I, really I, I want to get their help? Right. And there's like, – it's like Jedi mind tricks, right? You try to figure out like – I love how she just – the publicist for Adam Grant relented. You know, she's just like, I give up. You've done so much for me. You're, <laughs> you're reverse engineering Adam's book. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I love I, – I think for me it's, it's – uh, I have to – I had to retrain myself in some ways. You know, I had to – because I always believed the philosophy, but I didn't have a strategy around it. And that book helped me contextualize it. And my, my first guest, Bernie Burns, is a, is a juggernaut on the online video space. If you're a gamer, you've definitely watched his videos. And uh, his company raised $2.5 million on Indiegogo for a movie. For, he has 10 million subscribers on YouTube, 3 billion video views. So it's like ESPN for games. And they do machinima series and very niche. But his – he came on my podcast, and I call this the first follower. It's actually a chapter in the book is about your first follower. It's a great TED Talk by Derek Sievers about this. There's this guy. He's a stoner at a, at a rock show like a, in the field at like Coachella, and he's dancing and like he's hallucinating. And Derek talks about how when you create a movement, everyone wants to be a leader, but you have to be a follower for someone's movement. And so Bernie was my first guest, and he gave me social proof to – I got six guests because of him and people heard the podcast with him on it and were like, Oh yeah, I'll come on your show. And so my first five guests were YouTubers. My fourth guest was Flula, this amazing German comedian, DJ YouTuber. He did my theme music for free. So getting social proof and the first follower for the movement of my, what I think is a movement at least, you know, is I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but there's a, there's a lot to be said for like getting that person to believe in you and give you credibility to the, to the market. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because the the process of giving in our new economy, it, it shifts a little bit because it's one thing to be talking to someone. I think people can understand you're talking to someone at a cocktail party you've just met and they're looking to hire an IT person. And you, it, oh, it turns out your cousin is looking for a new job. You put them together, bam, you've given. Yes. But it's a different matter to think about it in, in new contexts like – through social media or people that you know in your extended network or making introductions or other sorts of things. Or you and I were talking beforehand about a membership community that you and I both belong to and taking that approach even to that community where you don't even know people. You don't even seeing them face-to-face, but, but giving in that context as well. Yeah, there's. it's funny talking to people that don't subscribe to that model and then they hear about it and they're like, oh, that person thinks like you. <laughs> like they think that they can give and help and it's, you know... Good for them. It's funny, though. When you read the book and you think about this philosophy, then you start seeing the takers in your life, don't you? Oh, yeah. It's, it's so eye-opening. Yeah. And then another aspect of it is the disagreeable giver. So I had this guy, Paul Jarvis, on my podcast, and he's a guru in self-publishing. He has you know, a really good business podcast, uh, 
Invisible Office Hours. And uh, he's just a really great resource, great email list. And uh, he, I don't know if you could swear on your show, but he, he calls himself uh, like, an, just, he's a nice a-hole. <laughs> and he's not going to BS people. And he's completely a disagreeable giver. Where he's on the surface cranky and you think he's a taker. But beneath it all, he came on my podcast for over an hour. And I think podcasting in a lot of ways is, it's like mentoring. You know, you get to talk to these people that you look up to and, you know, help your community learn, help yourself learn. And he, I, was, I told him, I'm like, dude, you're not, a, you're not an a-hole. Like, come on. You're so giving. But his, era, his aura of disagreeableness in some ways is part of his, you know, his personality and it, who he is. But it's also that, that kind of person is important to recognize. And I think, at least I think so. Well, if he was a disagreeable taker, he probably wouldn't be as successful as he has been so far. Right. Yeah. And he talks about you know building email lists and selling products, and you can't build an email list and sell products to them if you aren't a giver. No. Um, I want to ask a little bit about the entertainment industry because you've worked in the entertainment industry, and yeah, some it's the people, worst. right? Some people might say it's the reason okay, why well, I'm not working there anymore. <laughs> and I worked in the entertainment industry earlier in my in my career, so I know a little bit about it, not as much as you do, but but. Um, so do you think that these rules that we're talking about, being a giver, not a taker, do they not apply to the entertainment industry? Because I'm sure that you can think, you and I can name, we wouldn't name them publicly on this podcast, but we could pro- off air, we'd name some names of some people who are probably, you know, might be takers. Are they really takers or, and they've been successful in spite of these rules? Yeah, I think that there's definitely a lot of takers and certain types of personalities. I think a lot of entrepreneurs and executives at startups are takers. I mean, there's motivated by greed and money and ego, and they're narcissistic. I think any industry where you have like a very hierarchical status of entertainment, politics, and entrepreneurship, it's almost like you have to reach a level of success before people start giving back. You know, like for the longest time, like Andrew Carnegie or these titans of industry, you know, back in like the 1900s, they didn't give back until they were dying. And so they transformed them, but they spent their whole life taking. And I think in entertainment, absolutely. Like the structure itself of being an assistant. So I, I would interview for jobs when I first moved to L.A., coming from D.C., and I would answer someone's phone f- to pay my dues, which was so dumb. And I, they told me I was not qualified. Like I have a college degree. I can write. I've worked professionally for three years. And then this woman was like, get out of my office. Like, and she walked out mid-conversation because I was underqualified to answer her phones. And that kind of mentality is so small-minded, and it's definitely not, you know, giving mentality. Yeah. I can think back to an interview. I had gigs like that early in my career as well. And uh, I can I remember a situation where I was interviewing for, like, a, a second assistant job. So some the bigger executives have first, second, and third assistants. Yeah. <laughs> and there's hierarchy to the assistants. And they all wear headsets. They all wear headsets, right. And they roll calls. Well, oh, my God. That's what do. she said I couldn't do. You couldn't roll calls. Okay. Yeah. So rolling calls, for those who are uninitiated... <laughs> means your boss is driving home for the day or yes. driving somewhere and you're on the phone connecting calls for them because, you know, heaven forbid that they actually place the call themselves. And um, so I, I, the funny thing was I came in for an interview with a first assistant to be a second assistant and he was rolling calls for the boss who was driving home. It was like seven o'clock at night, maybe eight o'clock at night. And, um, and he would be asking me questions and then in the middle of an answer, he would cock his head to the side because the headset was on and start talking to the boss. It completely threw me off, right? I'm like in the midst of answering a question and then completely threw me off. 
So, it, but it, uh, let's get back to the original point. No, which this was is hysterical. The, that you're, I'm cracking up. For, yeah. I mean, this is just reminding me of how certain business people don't understand the long term. I think the wealth of relationships is built on the long game. And what I try very hard is to not ask people for much that come on the show. You know, I ask them to tweet it out or, you know, share it on Facebook. But I don't want to do like a cheap favor. And I don't want people to feel like they're doing me favors. Even Willie Geist, when I had him on, he's obviously like a very successful guy. But I wanted to talk about our college stories, uh, this like Big Sky basketball tournament, because he wrote about it in his best-selling book, Good Talk Dad. And uh, so he ended up writing about a book with his dad, who's Bill Geist, that's on CBS this morning. And I didn't want Willie to be my first guest. I could have very easily have got him. I wanted to have like 20 episodes under my belt because I think a lot of people burn out their relationships. And I'm, 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 you're, you're the guru on this, but because they ask for small favors that really they're cheap and they're not worth it. It's better to not ask really for anything. And then hopefully the person offers to help or you just you try to use that resource and that person as a as someone to help you when you really need it. Right. Or turn it around and help them as much as you can overwhelmingly. And eventually they're going to be like, ah, I got to do something for you. And then it's amazing. You know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And there's, for me, there's just like certain philosophies now that in the modern era you have, and that's what the influencer economy really is. It's, you have to pay it forward because you got up most likely through the internet and you raised yourself up from the madness that is social media, podcasting or YouTube. Like for example, Freddie Wong is my favorite guest. So he's got this video game high school series. He raised $2 million on Kickstarter and Indiegogo. He has 7 million YouTube subscribers. And the guy's perks for his campaign... Uh, do you want to talk about this, by the way? I think perks are so valuable. Like explain, people, explain what you mean. Well, just in general, adding value to your customers and your email list in creative ways are a way to really embrace your personality and also connect with the audience and for perks and kickstarter you know every time you buy a reward you get certain like thresholds of perks for how much you donate so he did this really cool perk for twenty five hundred dollars you could go to disneyland with the cast and the crew of this video game high school series that has been watched over a hundred million times so this is a juggernaut another perk was for uh, like five thousand dollars he would freddie would come to your front door and deliver donuts or fried dough to anywhere in the U.S. Wow. And uh, like one of my tentative chapter titles is would Quentin Tarantino bring you donuts? Mm-hmm. Never. Mm-hmm. That's just not what he does. But when you come from this economy of your fans and your community, that's your lifeblood. And you have to reward them in ways that are authentic and real to you to build a long-standing relationship with them. That's a great lesson. Okay. I want to wrap this up because we've got, been going for a little while here, but I, I can't leave without uh, asking uh, you. Do we go on too many tangents? <laughs> no, no. I thought these were great. These are great. Okay. But, but I can't leave without asking you about being a comedian because you actually were a comedian oh, yeah. at one point. So, right. so naturally my question is, you know, tell me a funny joke. So that's no, I'm why kidding. I'm kidding. That's one of the reasons why <laughs> you know? I stopped doing comedy because <laughs> the second you tell someone and you're like at dinner, yeah. like, hey, can you pass the salt? Tell yeah, me a t- joke. Tell me a joke. Make me yeah. laugh. Yeah, like, oh, dude, this is the worst. Yeah, that must be fun. You're at a dinner table and everyone stops, puts down their fork, and waits for you to tell them a joke. Yeah, Ryan's a comedian. And then, oh, no way, tell me a joke. And then you realize why comedians are always uh, on the side of depressed because the pressure to be funny is really, uh, it's, it's, it's a lot. 
Well, let me ask you this then. Let's relate it to our current discussion, which is influencers. So what did getting on stage and trying to make people laugh, what did that teach you that you bring into your work today? I think I just am so informal with every business pitch I do. And I, I try to connect with people because if someone hires me, it's going to be for me, not necessarily the product or the services I do. I think it's just the relationship. So I'm very off the cuff. Even my podcast, like I was joking about tangents, but I can talk about like Paul Jarvis had rat has rats, like he owns rats. So we talked about that because it's just who he is. And I think in general, I try to connect with people and you're the same way where I find things in common that I think are interesting. And I'm really am curious about connecting with people on stuff that is relevant versus just talking to talk. And I think comedy in general, gave me more of like an improvisational approach to business that it sometimes backfires on me, you know, cause some people don't think I'm being serious, but I'm very serious about the work I do, but, and the job itself is the priority, but the process around working should be more, the least stressful as possible. Mm, good advice. Okay. Final question. So this yeah. is your Oscar speech. Okay. You've worked in the entertainment industry, so you should, you've probably been preparing this for a long time, I imagine. You've just been awarded a – it can be a lifetime achievement award, best director, best writer, whatever it is. But tell me about the relationships, the people that you thank. You know, we know your family, of course, but particularly the business relationships that have contributed to your success in your career so far, mentors, colleagues. Yeah, I would um, – so I'd start off thanking my daughter just uh, – and then from there – I would thank Rachel Romero from Machinima, who introduced me to Bernie Burns, my first guest, who was my first follower and advocate. Thank Bernie for opening the door up to all these people that I got as my first few guests on the podcast, back when this didn't even exist. I also want to thank Big Charm, one of my best friends who's an executive at Russell Simmons, All Depth Digital, and his, his help has been instrumental. Ryan Stoner, uh, Aaron Dode, just business colleagues that have helped me along the way. And they're the kind of guys that if you ask them to tweet something out just to make the guests that you have feel good, they do that for you. And uh, my friend Coleman Green, my brother Michael, like it, I have a countless amount of people that have helped me behind the scenes. And you know getting a podcast off the ground is not easy work. And so the connections I've had, the warm introductions, Neil Ketkar, my buddy who introduced me to Adam Grant, just the overwhelming support of people that have put me in a position to succeed. Uh, and I could list a lot more. That, but, well, but the music is, is coming up and it's cutting you off. So we'll, uh, we'll leave uh, it at yeah. that. <laughs> but I think I would get a tearjerker from the crowd by mentioning my daughter. Because I started the podcast and this whole new reinvention of my career right when she was born. Hmm. And I wanted to just not be that guy that didn't do what he was potentially supposed to do or needed to do and the daughter my my, my little baby julia she like was 100 percent the catalyst mm, great lesson okay where can people find out more about you ryan they can go to influencereconomy.com for the podcast and information about the book which hopefully will be coming out in the fall and they can follow me on twitter at ryan j will and if they would like to subscribe on itunes they can search for stories from the influencer economy for the podcast Okay, and and if the book's coming out in the fall, you got to get cracking. Got to get that book done. Yeah, yeah. It's, the, the chapters are outlined. Oh, you're, you're halfway there. I'm halfway there. <laughs> <laughs> I have an editor. <laughs> an editor can do all the work. Yeah, no, they don't actually. I was so annoyed. I'm like, Come on, <laughs> that is carry, carry more weight. <laughs> They're like, no, read. They said to rewrite a bunch of stuff. 
I thought, wait, are, did I hire you to, to rewrite this? <laughs> and I was like, oh, I, I went on the lower payment. We need plan. to reevaluate this relationship. <laughs> expecting that you would, when you, by rewrite, I thought you meant you were going to do it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Ryan. Cool. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Smart Business Revolution podcast with John Corcoran. Find out more at smartbusinessrevolution.com. And while you're there, sign up for our email list and join the revolution. 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 And be listening for the next episode of the Smart Business Revolution podcast. That was my episode with John Corcoran. Make sure you check out smartbusinessrevolution.com. That's where you can find him and all his nuggets and goodies and all sorts of wisdom around how to build quality friendships and relationships where I've learned a lot from him. I had him on the podcast as well. You can check him out on my show. Just a quick uh, thing about John, which I wanted to point out is that he's a really giving networker and giving with relationships. It's a fantastic to watch him grow as a connector and as a person in business, because I think you know, I'm lucky enough to know him right now, but he's going to do great things. And I'm fortunate to call him a friend, so I was really happy to post this episode from him because I think we'll look back and we'll think, wow, Ryan knew John way back when uh, because he's doing some amazing stuff. At least I hope so. And I, ideally, that's what I feel like everyone on the podcast is, is either a secret where I'm able to help them tell their story. And then we'll look back in a few years and think that the podcast is more of an archive, more of a historical museum, if you will. Where people can say, oh, yeah, Ryan knew this person then. He knew Jenk from the Young Turks, and you know they're the new CNN news network, and they're on television and every device in the world. Or you know, Bernie Burns and Rooster Teeth and, you know, making feature blockbuster films, raking in hundred you know, millions of dollars. So I'm idealizing it because I like this world and the universe of the influencer economy. I'm looking outside my window. Right now I'm in Southern California based in L.A., and – could not be more than thrilled that uh, you are listening to this podcast. And at the end of every episode, I try to release some nuggets of wisdom, at the very least update people on the book. So if you're still with me, have the book sign up page, influencereconomy.com slash book. I also have a tentative due date, which I'll make a bigger announcement around, but it's going to be December of this year and uh, cannot believe that's what's going down, but I'm motoring through chapters and, uh, Finishing one right now on Alan Seppenwall from HitFix, which I'm really excited to show to the world, as well as uh, the one on Bernie Burns, which is one of the first chapters of Rooster Teeth. So in the end, uh, the book's going to come out end of year. I'll be ramping up a lot of marketing efforts coming up this fall. So if you want to collaborate on a podcast, hit me up, Ryan, at InfluencerEconomy.com. I'm very soft-spoken when it comes to the book, but I'm going to have to really get the word out very soon starting in september so would love to hear what you think about this podcast and others always email me i try to read everyone and respond i actually read everyone and i try to respond to all of them and connecting with a lot of great listeners and collaborating on people's podcasts which is one of my favorite things to do so anyway without further ado i'm heading over to duke zebert's for some chicken in the pot and i'm gonna go with julia because she is 21 months right now, and she's starting to say words, or at least more gibberish. So I think we'll have a really good chicken in the pot, maybe the matzo ball soup. I'm not entirely sure what is on the menu at Duke's tonight, 
but I'm pretty sure Julia and I will have a very tasty meal. Oh, yeah, and thanks for my mom for helping to uh, cultivate this podcast because she listened to John's episode. So, uh, Mom, much love. Big shout out. Talk to you soon. Chicken in the pot.